Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 139, The Fall of Glendower. In 1406, Prince Henry, son of King Henry, was 20 and without doubt becoming a force in the kingdom. Henry V, as he will of course be known, is something of an iconic figure for the English, Agincourt and all that, you know, land of hope and glory, mother of the free, blah blah blah. The debate is whether he was indeed the greatest king to sit on the English throne or whether in fact he is something of a hard-faced, cold and calculating monster as has been more recently claimed. So it'll be interesting to see how the lad goes down while dad is still around and as we get to 1406, Prince Henry does indeed begin to play a greater role in the life of the nation and it's not always a happy or comfortable role. Prince Henry had enjoyed, by all accounts, an entirely conventional early childhood. He lived with his mum, Mary Bahoon, shared a room with his brothers Thomas, John and Humphrey, and had his own greyhounds. He was taught the harp, and more interestingly for him, no doubt, he was taught to fight. He spent his time on falconry, fishing, riding and walking. He had a conventional education as well, and like his father, he appears to have taken to and liked his learning. One of his early tutors was his uncle Henry Beaufort, only 12 years older than him. Henry Beaufort was at Cambridge University and was to become Chancellor of that university by the age of 20, Bishop of Winchester by the age of 24 and Chancellor of England for a couple of years between 1403 and 5. Our Henry Beaufort is a larger-than-life figure that we'll hear a lot more about over the next 50 years or so. And his relationship with Prince Henry started young, and he helped spark a love of learning in the prince. Many years later, as the brutality of the sieges of Caen and Moor unfolded, 
Henry was carrying with him an extensive library with books on law, logic, history, Seneca's letters, Cicero's rhetoric. It's worth noting we're talking about a traditional library here, none of the latest humanist thinking. But still, anyone who can get through Seneca without opening a vein is clearly something of an egghead. The young Prince Henry's relationship with his dad is an interesting one and about to become particularly interesting as the prince enters politics. As we know, Henry IV himself was something of a golden child, a perfect chivalric knight with a sharp sword, a sturdy steed and a purse full of gold, and he'd taken the opportunity to travel as far as he could. And so that meant he was away quite a lot, and of course he'd been banished by King Richard for a while to boot. Now, it was entirely conventional at the time for sons not to see much of their fathers as far as the nobility was concerned. This wasn't the namby-pamby 21st century. They brought them up tough those days, well, dragged them up more like. And so on. Children tended to spend the first seven years with the women anyway. And then, of course, his mother died when he was very young, just eight years old. After that, the prince was brought up mainly in John of Gaunt's household, no doubt, Everyone reacted differently to the way their upbringing went then as now. In Henry's case, though, there's a suspicion that his upbringing didn't help build a bond of love with his dad. The prince seems to have viewed his father as someone more to be competed with and surpassed than anything else. And as we've seen, his father was a very distant figure, and the prince's loyalties were not as clear as they might have been in his younger years. Interestingly, after Prince Henry came to the throne as Henry V, he paid a coppersmith to go back to his mother's old tomb and prettify it. By contrast, he failed to carry out his father's last will and testament as regards his death. So, maybe that's significant. Dunno, just saying. There is something equivocal about the prince and his attitude to his power in the early days. When Richard banished his father, when the young prince was 13, the young Henry joined Richard's household. Now, you would be forgiven for expecting that to be a pretty nervous period and a pretty nervous relationship. But actually, the two of them seem to have got on pretty well and they seem to have liked each other. And Richard treated the young Henry very kindly. He took him to Ireland with him and Henry seems to have done well there and been knighted by Richard while he was there. Richard apparently gave the lad some advice which seems far more suited to Henry than it ever did to Richard. My fair cousin, henceforth be gallant and bold, for unless you conquer, you will have little name for valour. Not exactly earth-shattering in its profundity, but suitable advice, which the prince seems to have followed. So it gets really interesting when Bolingbroke arrived back and raised the banner of rebellion. Richard and the prince were at Trim in Ireland at the time, and Richard called the prince into him, understandably a little put out with the whole Lancaster clan. Here's how the exchange went. Henry, my boy, see what thy father hath done to me. Through these unhappy doings you will perchance lose your inheritance. I am sincerely grieved by these tidings, and as I conceive, you are fully assured of my innocence in this proceeding of my father... I mean, okay, Henry is a boy at the mercy of the king in faraway Ireland, so you might say he's unlikely to say, my dad's bigger than you and he's really, really cool, so stick that in your pipe and smoke it, dicky boy. But it is at least a cool and calculating reply 
and at worst, frankly disloyal to his own flesh and blood. OK, so events unfolded as they did. Richard's military response was so weak it couldn't break the skin on a bowl of porridge, and we're left with Richard a captive. And the prince stayed stubbornly in the king's household until personally ordered to leave by his father. Come here, boy! Again, maybe we shouldn't read too much into it, but at the very least the word lukewarm would seem to be appropriate. But for a while at least, these potential problems seemed to disappear. After all, the prince was made Prince of Wales and Earl of Cornwall, Earl of Chester and all that sort of thing. He had honours and riches and glory coming out of his ears. So it would have seemed churlish to complain. In April 1406, he was reconfirmed as the Lieutenant of Wales and this time he would be genuinely in command rather than just a figurehead. The rubric about Henry is that he cut his military teeth in Wales and learned his craft there. And there's certainly something of the truth in that. But it's also easily exaggerated. So, for example, Parliament sent him a note in June of 1406 telling him to get his act together and get his backside over to Wales and stop swinging the lead. It's on little things like this that the Shakespearean reputation of the young waster is built. But the evidence is a bit thin, but we'll talk about that later. Because in general, Henry seems to have been a fiercely energetic and focused individual. But the first year of active command for Henry was a bad one for Glyndwr. With the failure of the French invasion, the light of opportunity went out of his rebellion, though quite clearly that's with the benefit of hindsight. But in 1406, Glyndwr's men were defeated in the south, one of his sons killed and his retreat began, losing much of Carmarthenshire, Gower and Ceredigion. Glyndwr was no longer getting a response from the French, no longer being recognised as an independent power in practical terms. For example, the fugitive Earl of Northumberland and his pal Bardolf arrived in Wales on the run and went from Glyndwr to France to try and drum up support there. But the French refused even to see him. With the loss of the French, Glyndwr no longer had a fleet. And in turn, this meant he could no longer hold Anglesey. In November 1406, most of Anglesey turned out at Beaumaris Castle to submit to Prince Henry's commissioners, and with this, the breadbasket of Wales back in English hands, Glyndwr was effectively toast. Pun intended. But before the English could start getting over-enthusiastic, with the castles of Harlech and Aberystwyth still in his hands, Glyndwr was emphatically not yet beaten. And so it was these two castles that Henry concentrated on, and his showpiece siege was at Aberystwyth. One of the other features of Henry's wars in Wales was that it was here that he established many of the key relationships that would be so important to him later. And many talents were with him at the siege of Aberystwyth to make the campaign a success. One of them was the slightly dodgy Edmund, Duke of York, son of King Richard's uncle Edmund of Langley. Another was a man called John Oldcastle. Famously, John Oldcastle was the original Falstaff in the play Henry V by that bloke, you know the one, uh, William Shakespeare. I.e. in the original play it was Oldcastle rather than Falstaff. Now Oldcastle was an important Herefordshire knight and as a knight of the marches was inevitably brought into contact with Prince Henry and the two seemed to have got on and John gained royal favour. 
One of the reasons we know that is that when Old Castle's wife Catherine died, he got himself a new wife, Joan, who was a much higher social status, much shinier, and the heir to the Baron Cobham estates, which turned him from a significant regional figure into a national one. Now it could have been the quality of his legs and buttocks, of course, but by and large, mothers and fathers in those days were much more flinty than that. As it happened, young Joan was to get more than she bargained for with John Oldcastle. He brought a whiff of sulphur with him, by the way of heretical Lollard leanings, and he might make the Cobham family regret their choice yet. Anyway, just to finish the discussion about Shakespeare, the Oldcastle character in the play took off in the public imagination, though I think you'll find, in fact, that Falstaff's character is a fine example of the fact that Shakespeare can't do comedy. But anyway, the Cobham family cried foul, pointing out that whatever his sins, John Oldcastle was not the arrant knave that was Falstaff. And in fact, he was both brave and sober, and had a fine pair of legs and buttocks into the bargain. And so Shakespeare changed the name to Falstaff, which I'm told does show up in the scansion of the lines from time to time. Anyway, we were talking about the Siege of Aberystwyth in 1406, not the Blessed Bard again, and Henry's military education. Though I'm going into more digression, I'm afraid, before we get to that. Firstly, let's keep going through that list of illustrious people at Aberystwyth in 1406. We've had the Duke of York, John Oldcastle. And then there's Richard Beecham, the Earl of Warwick. He's a 24-year-old at the time, so a young contemporary of the Prince. He'd been at the Battle of Shrewsbury, was with the Prince thereafter in the Welsh Wars and was to remain a close intimate in both politics and war, one of those crucial relationships formed at the time. In 1408, interestingly, he did a very similar tour to the one Bolingbroke had done, the 15th century equivalent of the 19th century Grand Tour. There's a contemporary biography about Richard Beecham, Earl of Warwick, and the line, And in this journey, Earl Richard received great praise at many tournaments and other feats of war. Could have been written about either his or Bolingbroke's journey. Now, of course, Richard Beecham, Earl of Warwick, was the successor to the previous Earl, who had been the appellant who brought Richard low, and was in turn brought low, with devastation to their estates and status by the King. However, Richard had Bolingbroke's ear and trust when he became King Henry IV, and despite the later political conflicts between King and Prince, he always retained that trust. And therefore, Richard successfully rebuilt the Warwick lands and status. So we've done the Duke of York, John Oldcastle, Warwick, and one more man to mention, a new man and family to keep in your minds, John Talbot. The Talbot family, like the Oldcastles, were a significant local family on the marches of Wales, holding amongst other places the rather magnificent castle of Goodrich, held at one stage by our old pal William the Marshal, and definitely worth a visit if you're ever in the area. Again, John Talbot is a young man and a contemporary of the prince and destined, like Warwick, to be a close companion throughout his reign and beyond. Talbot would prove to be a warrior, with pretty much all that entailed. He lived and breathed the chivalric image, the valour, never surrender, tournaments in high style, romantic stories, the whole kit, and indeed, sometimes even the whole caboodle. And crucially, he had no problem with the essential double standards, 
and was perfectly comfortable to be two-brained because he was a violent, aggressive, ruthless and decisive man and military commander, quite prepared to kick a man where he was down and keep kicking, utterly determined to build the power and estates of his family, no matter whose local rights he walked all over. His death would reflect his life and talents. He was a warrior, a great tactical warrior, but not a great strategist. He died at Castillon in 1453, leading a charge against a bank of French artillery, generally considered a bad idea. The charge and the remainder of the English army was cut to ribbons by said artillery. His death at the hands of the new, impersonal long-range weapon came to symbolise the death of chivalry itself. OK, so you're going to remember John Talbot and Richard, Earl of Warwick in particular, because they'll be constant companions over the next 30 years or so. But I'm going to resist going back to the Siege of Aberystwyth for just a little while yet, and instead I'm going to follow up that comment about artillery and its impact at Castillon. The last time we had a conversation about artillery was at Cressy and Edward's wagons with those anti-personnel cannon. Since then the world had changed, but I'm going to go back right to the beginning of artillery. Famously, gunpowder was probably an import from China, first mentioned by an English friar and philosopher, Roger Bacon, in 1268. It's really not clear how the knowledge had come to him, but it could have been from the travels of the Flemish friar, William of Rubruck. It could have come via Arab merchants. Or maybe metal-barrelled guns were imported from China through Russia. But really, we don't know who brought the idea over and worked out the magic of it. Because rather suddenly in the 14th century, gunpowder and guns are being talked about. A document in Florence in 1326 talks about metal cannon as though they were commonplace. So it's probably a while before then that they were widely introduced. The very first pictures we have are of vase-shaped objects with a big arrow sticking out of the end, but really the early history is very obscure but development is fast. And by 1406, artillery in particular is very common, and even handguns are frequently mentioned. There were three ways of making cannon. Bronze was the favoured material, poured into a mould and finished, just like making church bells, which the world and her husband knew how to do back then. But it cost a fortune, so it wasn't often an option. Then you could use cast iron, but that was brittle. And so that left us with wrought iron, which was the normal route. So what they'd do is they'd take strips of wrought iron, and then they'd make a hoop to car- and then they'd make a hoop to clasp them all together, one hoop to bind them, and in the darkness find them. The hoop was designed to be too small for the job, heated to make it expand so it would just fit when hot, and then allowed to cool to fix it tightly, bringing the strips really tightly together. And it seemed to work perfectly well, though fair dues, it has to be said, were at the start of the technology, and so standing too close to a cannon about to be fired was still a high-risk activity. Improvements came all the time. So in the early 15th century came the practice of corning the gunpowder, grinding the gunpowder together when wet and keeping it in large granules or corns. It meant that the gunpowder burnt more slowly and reduced the amount of exploding cannon. As for the cannon themselves, they could often be massive, up to 10 tonnes. At Aberystwyth, we have a 210 cannon called the Messenger. These big cannon tended to get themselves a name in times medieval, which I can't help thinking 
will be part of the fact that they're new, big, frightening, still unusual. And also partly probably because there was none of the standardisation we expect to have these days. Every one of them was different. And for example, the cannon would throw stones, not standard-sized metal balls. This caused great problems of supply with finding the right size of stone. And Henry IV himself enjoyed designing canning, getting perfectly involved, and again, all of that speaks to the fact that it's relatively new, with a lot of change and innovation going on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The received wisdom is that these cannon were really more trouble than they were worth. They were really slow to transport, and not as effective initially as the more traditional type of siege engine. And then multiply that by ten when it came to hand firearms, which by and large were heavy, had a very slow rate of fire, and were so heavy they had to be rested on a tripod to steady them. And before the days of rifling, they were hideously inaccurate at more than spitting distance. But look, if gunpowder weapons really were so useless, no one would have used them. And yet by 1400, they were an integral part of any army. Handguns, it's true to say, have a way to go, but by the mid-15th century they would also be a permanent feature of any army. And for siege weapons, they were already indispensable, so why was that then? Gunpowder weapons were indeed slow, relatively inaccurate and dangerous given to blowing up. But even in the early days, they had their advantages. Handgun bullets had a greater velocity than longbows and crossbows, and therefore greater range and greater armour-piercing power. Plus, of course, essentially any old Tom, Dick or Harriet could use them, unlike longbows, which required a life of training. So if you had enough of them in the line you could do serious damage anyway. For the cannon, the same benefit applied, greater range and power, and plus the angle of fire was more effective against castle walls than you got from, say, a trebuchet. And all that noise and fury, that had a seriously demoralising effect on the opposition. More than once, a garrison 
took one look at the cannon in the siege train and called it a day. And anyway, without wanting to be rude, how important was it that transporting cannon was slow? If you're thinking of fast things, the phrase medieval army is not one of the things that's going to come up. It was extremely slow anyway. Carting a cannon didn't significantly slow them down any more. By and large, cannon were used to batter down castle walls. But again, even in the early days, there are examples, unmanoeuvrable as they were, where they were used against people on the field of battle. So the aforementioned Castillon and Richard Beecham, for example. It's too early for them to be used on ships, or at least too early to have them for the purpose of sinking the other ship, but sometimes they were used as anti-personnel weapons. But the aim was still to grapple and board. OK, so finally, let's go back to the siege of Aberystwyth in 1407, after possibly the longest digression in living memory. Prince Henry was besieging the castle of Aber, along with his pals, the Ministry of All Talents, Duke of York and all. The messenger was booming away, until unfortunately it exploded. But even so, by September, Rhys at Griffith. Glinda was commander in the castle, decided there was nothing for it. He'd have to make some kind of deal with the young prince. And the deal has survived. It was that there would be a truce for six weeks, during which the Welsh were free to come and go as they wished. If during that time Glyndua could raise an army and fright the prince, then fair dues. He could see if he could keep the castle. But if he didn't, Rhys would surrender. Now Henry was counting on the fact that his dad planned to bring a royal army to help. It was all something of an embarrassment, to be honest. Glyndua got his act together and arrived at the castle with army in tow. There was no extra English royal army. And so Henry watched Owen march into Aberystwyth, chuck out the guys who'd made the deal in the first place, then hang over the wall and blow raspberries at him. It was an education for the young prince in the realities of life, and not a mistake he'd make again. For the moment, then, Glyndua had survived. But the Wheel of Fortune was spinning, and not spinning in a good way if you liked leeks and daffodils. The collapse of Glyndua's foreign policy was confirmed. The death in November 1407 in France of the Duke of Orléans brought the Duke of Burgundy to power and truce negotiations with the French, from which Wales was excluded. And also the English had also made a truce with Brittany. And then in 1406 there had been a development in Scotland. In that year, Robert III was in a power struggle with the Duke of Albany when his health began to fail and he decided he must keep his only son James out of his enemy's hands by sending them to France. As James travelled through Scotland to get a boat, it all went hideously wrong and the Douglas family attacked his party. The twelve-year-old James fled and holed up on a castle on a small rock in the Firth of Forth. Fortunately, or at at least at the time it must have seemed fortunate, a ship arrived en route from Danzig to France and picked the lad up from the rock. Happy, happy. Unfortunately for the Scots, an English pirate ship then came across them and captured the ship. They took one look at James and knew they were on to a good thing, and before you could say 30 pieces of silver, James was in the possession of King Henry. He would be in captivity for the next 16 years a permanent check on the ambitions of the Scots to attack the English. 
It also marked the end of any hope for Glyndwr of international help, and in the long term, the end of his chances to rid his country of the English plague. There is, incidentally, a really good play I saw t'other day at the National Theatre by Rona Munro. Really good. Go and see them if you can. The Siege of Abba in 1407 was a serious military blunder by the Prince, but hey, we learn from our mistakes, do we not? Or at least, that's what I keep telling my children about why I keep messing up all the time. But in other ways... Over the year 1406 to 1408, Henry learned how to run a military campaign, and a few years later, boy, he'd show how well he'd learnt that lesson. Once the French were gone, he re-established control of the seas, and unlike his father, he actively used his ships to resupply isolated garrisons. Under the prince, gone with the big, cumbersome and short-lived chevaucet of his father. Now there were small, nimble bands of mounted archers, who carried their food and fodder with them, based in a series of small garrisons. All of this cut down Glindor's ability to move around at will and took away from him the initiative. With Anglesey gone, Glindor had to work harder to keep his men supplied. Prince Henry used a combination of terror and conciliation, burning and pillaging where he found resistance, offering pardons where he found a willingness to change sides. And so in 1408, the English tried again, and by late summer Aberystwyth had fallen and the prince had moved north to join the Talbots outside Harlech. In the end, even mighty Harlech couldn't hold out, and Glyndor was unable to challenge the prince's army. By autumn 1408, Harlech had fallen, but not before Edmund Mortimer had died within it. The prisoners who were taken to London included Glyndor's wife and Mortimer's wife and three children. Mortimer's family didn't last long, dead and buried by December of the first year. We know not why, but sounds slightly suspicious. It was the end of Glyndor, and the men that had joined him knew it, and in droves they deserted and made their peace with the English. In general, the prince knew how to be generous and allow them to keep their lands, often for a reasonable fine. Glyndur tried one last raid in 1409 into Shropshire, but the results just emphasised how much had changed and how much the glory days had gone. Two of his leaders were captured, both hanged, drawn and quartered, one in London and the other in Shrewsbury. And thereafter, Glyndur was reduced to waging an increasingly obscure guerrilla war for two years. Part of his activities included capturing his old enemy David Gam and raising a ransom in 1412. In 1411, we know that Henry tried to bring his activities to an end by offering a pardon again, but Glyndor had too much pride invested to accept such an offer. Glyndor's glory days were well and truly behind him, living in open country with a few remaining followers and his son Meredith. We don't know for sure when he died, but Adam of Us claimed 1415, and other Welsh writers identified the 20th or 21st of September but there are many other theories. The obscurity of his end has led, of course, to inevitable legends, that Glyndor was not dead, but just sleeping in a cave with his men, and would return one day to save his people. Who knows, maybe it's the same cave as King Arthur. 1408 then effectively saw the end of one of the major problems Henry had had to deal with. 
In the same year, Baldorf and Northumberland resurfaced one more time. With the failure of the tripartite indenture, he'd fled to Scotland, and nothing daunted in February 1408, he launched yet another rebellion, appearing in the north and travelling south with his army. Henry started to race north to meet him, but needn't have worried. Percy's army was feeble enough to be dealt with by the high sheriff. Percy's army was feeble enough to be dealt with by the high sheriff. At the Battle of Bramham Moor, the sheriff attacked Percy's carefully prepared positions and targeted Percy himself personally. For the sheriff, it worked out just fine. The rebel army fled leaving both Henry Percy and Thomas Bardolf dead on the field of battle, and the heir to the earldom of Northumberland, a 15-year-old miner, at the Scottish court. It was an end to rebellion at last. It not only finally decided who was king, it decided who was the power in the northern marches, and that was the Neville family, the earls of Westmoreland, or at least for the moment. Now, surely Henry could have some respite and get on with dealing with his political issues and getting Parliament off his back. Because the irony was that despite his military successes and despite now being pretty much safely ensconced on the throne, Henry was in danger of becoming a lame duck monarch. He was ill and under fire from Parliament and in serious want of support. And so he turned to Thomas Arundel, Archbishop of Canterbury. We've heard quite a lot about Thomas Arundel one way or another. Love him or loathe him, Arundel was a political heavyweight. He was an emotional, volatile man, but intellectual, as pious as an Archbishop of Canterbury ought to be, and a conscientious administrator. He also liked to see people happy and and arrive at a solution, whatever his personal beliefs, on the matter at hand, and so he compromised. So, for example, after the Archbishop's scroops, execution, the Pope had been predictably livid, and a bull of excommunication was immediately sent to Arundel for him to publish and pronounce, to punish all the perpetrators. Clearly this would have been political dynamite locally, and so Arundel mm, conveniently managed to lose it. Oops. In January 1406 then, Henry made Arundel Chancellor. Through 1406 he came at once to congratulate and curse himself because Arundel knew that to protect the king he had to demonstrate his influence and control. Arundel dominated the permanent council set up by Parliament. He enforced the 31 Articles rigorously, and if Henry tried to work around them, he had no hesitation in putting a stop to it. For example, he left a standard instruction that if Henry tried to get around the Exchequer to send a bit more expenditure through his personal department, the royal wardrobe, then he, Arundel, was to know about it before anything went through. And pretty soon Arundel was all that stood between Henry and further humiliation. Arundel played a clever game, firmly keeping Henry under his control, but praising him to Parliament as a great prince. But his job was about to get harder. Henry's journey back to Westminster was slow, punctuated by long rests. Even when he travelled down the river they had to stop for long rests, Henry had suffered poor health since Scroop's execution, but this was something different. And he could get no further than Archbishop Arundel's manor at Mortlake in south-west London, and there in June 1408 the king fell into a coma. Adam of Usk tells us a bit more about Henry's ailment, which had developed away from a skin complaint. 
Those of you with a squeamish disposition, turn away now. Uh, Festering of the flesh, dehydration of the eyes, a rupture of the internal organs. Henry could no longer ride a horse, no longer walk, and his lower body was in agony, simply rotting away. He recovered from the coma, but everybody expected him to die at any point. Prince Henry arrived in December at the king's bedside, waiting for the old fellow to pop his clogs so that he could take over the farm. In 1409, Henry made his will, which in times medieval you really didn't do unless you thought it was time to croak. Actually, as a matter of interest, it's the first royal will in English since the conquest. Fab fact. Anyway, Henry thought he was going to die. Arundel thought he was going to die. Prince Henry thought he was going to die. And Prince Henry was preparing for government. But a bit like the castle in the swamp, inconveniently, someone at this point piped up to say the king wasn't quite dead yet. And in fact, by mid-March, he was feeling better and well enough to travel to the royal palace at Eltham, which is in south-east London, by the way. Now Henry's life as a king had been hard enough, but at least challenged and buffeted as he had been by criticism, he'd visibly been in control. But even with his recovery, he was in a very poor physical condition, and a weak king meant only one thing. Well, three things. Faction, intrigue and dispute. Now, it's terribly difficult not to be anti-monarchical as a 21st century observer and a beneficiary of a democratic system, but put those thoughts aside, gentle listener, push them away. Medieval England needed a strong king, hate it or loathe it. You just wait until we get to Henry VI and then you'll know just why strong autocratic leadership was the way to go back then. At which point, enter Prince Henry stage left, Young and energetic, fearless and strong-minded, ready for power, representing the new world. But in the blue corner, Thomas Arundel, Chancellor, Archbishop, the King's friend, dominator of the King's Council, representing the old world. There's going to be a healthy debate, a full and frank exchange of views. Which seems, hopefully, like a reasonable place to stop for the moment. Thanks to everyone for listening and for all your comments on iTunes, the website and Facebook. Have a great time, everyone, and good luck.